When people talk to me about this podcast, that's Trees of Crowd, it's the one you're listening to, they usually begin by saying, Ha! Oaks! It's nominative determinism. With a surname like Oaks, you couldn't possibly have made a podcast on anything other than trees. It's at that point that I mention that my first name isn't actually David and that it's Rowan, and I quickly discover if they know the names of more than just the most famous of our native British trees. But yes, my parents, both loving nature and both loving wordplay, named me for Two Trees. Some of my family even call me Two Trees. And yes, I do have a podcast all about trees, but not just two of them. 56-ish of them, to be more exact. I have a podcast where I am... Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. This week's tree is tree number 28. Rowan. The Rowan. Sorbus alcuparia. If you've been listening closely to our past two episodes on the Rowan's Sorbus cousins, the White Beam and the Wild Service... You'll already be well aware that the rowan has elegant compound leaves, 7 to 15 little serrated beauties, and it also has bright orange scarlet berries and the most perfect of snow-white flowers, blossom that helps it cross-pollinate gloriously with the aforementioned white beam and the aforementioned wild service. And somewhat typically, the ancient Greeks have a tale for how the rowan, with its leaves and with its berries, came into being, and it goes a little like this. The careless ancient Greek goddess of youth, Hebe, lost the chalice from which she fed all the other gods ambrosia. Ambrosia is not the custard from Devon or the rice pudding, rather divine food that bestowed eternal youthful good looks that was literally brought to Olympus on the wings of doves. Anyway, a violent fight ensued between the dastardly demons who had stolen Hebe's chalice and a mighty eagle that had been sent to recover it. Feathers were shed, blood was spilt, and as they fell to the firmament, they transformed into, you've guessed it, rowan trees. And that is why the rowan came to have blood-red berries and serrated compound leaflets that look not a little like eagle feathers. Anyway, back in the modern world, where we don't have time for eagle cups that hold dove juice, what I haven't mentioned yet is that the rowan is the smallest of our three native sorbuses, growing to, at the most, around 20 metres in height. But being small is not necessarily a disadvantage. For one, it means that woodsmen and carpenters alike have found limited uses for the tree's wood, greatly increasing its chances of survival and, in part, solidifying the rowan's position as the most prevalent of our sorbus genus. As well as this, the rowan can make its home almost anywhere. It can survive at sea level, and it can survive at about 2,000 metres above sea level. Basically, anywhere with enough sunlight. It's not massively tolerant of shade. To put this in perspective, standing at 1,345 metres above sea level, Ben Nevis is the highest peak of the British Isles. As such, in mainland Europe, where the rowan also makes its home, you can find far higher rowan trees dotted across the higher mountain tops. But in the British Isles, our rowan grows at a higher altitude than almost any other of our native trees, matched only by the yew tree and a few of the smaller dwarf willows, and can be found at around 1,000 metres above sea level in the highlands of Scotland. 
but I can see a hand raised at the back of class. If rowans can grow at around 2,000 metres above sea level, and our highest point is 1,345 metres above sea level, why does the rowan stop at around 1,000 metres? A very good question. This 1,000 metre mark roughly marks what is known as the British Isles' tree line, the point at which, due to environmental concerns such as lack of water, extreme temperatures, high winds and others, trees simply cannot survive. This tree line varies from country to country, but wherever you are, the closer to this line the trees get, due to the tough conditions, the more stunted and gnarled the trees become in their attempts to weather the weather. The Germans have a wonderful name for these gnarly-shaped high-altitude trees. Krumholz or Knieholz, crooked wood or knee timber. Now, this past springtime, whilst filming Vikings Valhalla up in the Wicklow Hills, I've seen the rowan's distinctive white blossom standing out from miles away. And the only reason they don't blot out the entire horizon is that they are delicious, but not to us. Animal herbivores love them. They'll devour them as saplings, and also as they age, the trees will be stripped of their compound foliage, denuded of their beautiful silvery bark, and undressed of the many incredible lichens that often coat our rowan trees. So when you see a tree on a crag-side, a waterfall, or the edge of a ravine, it simply suggests that the goats, deer, and even mountain hares are not adventurous enough, or indeed not hungry enough, to eat them out of existence. And having casually name-dropped my latest televisual endeavour, the Vikings had a particular love for the Rowan, as it once saved their favourite hero from an almost certain death. According to the Prose Edda, a 13th century Icelandic text that is the source for pretty much everything we know about Norse folklore, Thor, to escape the murderous clutches of a giantess called Gjalp, threw himself into a rushing river, believing he could swim to safety. Gajalp had other ideas, however. She straddled the stream, a foot on each riverbank, and released a titanic torrent of steaming piss. Thor was set to drown and arrive in Valhalla, stinking of ammonia. But fortune favoured the thunder god that day, for a lone rowan tree took pity, bent down low enough for Thor to reach its branches, and enabled the thunder god to pull himself to safety. Upon reaching firmer ground, Thor grabbed a nearby boulder, flung it at the giantess's giant nether regions, and screamed, Or for those of you who don't speak Old Norse, Thor bellowed, A river must be damned at the source! Charming. But that is the prose edda for you, a book that offers sound water management advice through the metaphor of plugging a giant's urethra. What's not to love? And today, up in Viking territory, although possibly not so much in Iceland as their tree coverage is a little lacking, modern rowan trees growing on particularly high rocky crags are affectionately known as flying rowans. Like Thor's saviour tree, flying rowans are seen as guardians, which offer forth unusually high crops of berries to warn of the imminent onslaught of terrible rain or frustrating snowfall, and perhaps even a giant's bladder movement. But in Britain, however, the rowan's presence on the sides of mountains, flying or otherwise, alongside a compound leaf structure which resembles that of another of our native trees, the unrelated Fraxinus excelsior, the ash, has led to one of the rowan's many other familiar names. The mountain ash. In almost every country that our mountain ash takes root, it is revered as one of the most magical, and with that comes a whole host of associated names and associated stories. 
The name Rowan could derive from two possible sources. Many are seduced by the prospect of it coming from the Old Norse word runa, which also provides the origin for the word rune and means a secret or to whisper. It's a great etymology for a tree which, as you've already heard, is closely associated with Nordic myths and folklore. But it's far more likely to get its name from another Old Norse word, reynir, their word for red, in reference to the tree's stunning scarlet berries. Take your pick, it's your choice. Anyway, the Celts called the tree Fidnana Druad, meaning the wizard's tree, and the Anglo-Saxons preferred Kvikbeam, which means life tree. And across the British Isles, for centuries, the tree has been known as Witchwood, or the Wicker Tree, for it was believed to ward off witches and all evil omens. The tree was seen as one of the greatest spiritual protectors, and trees were planted anywhere witches might attempt to access, by garden gates, in farmyards, and at the entrance to broom and black cat emporiums, etc. In Scotland, it was said that adders, an ill omen, and Britain's sole poisonous snake would similarly avoid the witchwood, and there are stories from North Yorkshire of people using witchwood as the wooden side supports for their chimney breasts, for witches in Yorkshire, much like their red-chortling present-giving nemesis, love to come down a flu or two. Traditionally, on Holy Rood Day, or the Feast Day of the Cross, that's the 3rd of May to us atheists, rowan twigs were collected to create protective crucifixes in a wonderful cultural smash of Christianity and paganism. Twigs were to be cut from a different witchwood tree each year and brought home by a fresh root upon each occasion. They were then bound together with red thread and placed in purses, plaited into the manes of horses, sewn into jacket linings, you name it. The hope being that rowan tree and red thread, thread keep the witches from their speed. On the Isle of Man there are tales of these protective crosses of witchwood being hung outside the home, aboard sailors' ships and even around the neck of cattle. The rowan, as a protector, has a significant relationship, it seems, with the milk and cheese industry. Dairy maids in Ireland would likely thwack their herd with a switch made of rowan to help the milk rise in the udder like the sap in the stick. And the Germans even went one step further, where butter paddles were often made from the rowan due to the tree being seen there as the sovereign protector of milk. Witches, it seems, love nothing better than a cheeky indeterminate midnight curdling. Now, one of the reasons that the rowan, the colour red, and their protective powers have so strongly aligned themselves in our collective folk consciousness is that each scarlet orange berry, directly opposite its stalk, possesses a five-pointed star, a protective pentagram, if you will. But truth be told, this is actually present in all rosaceae trees that produce what botanists call false fruits. False fruits are those where the tasty, fleshy part of the fruit derives from the hypanthium. This is the cup-shaped top of the flower stem that supports the rest of the flower on its rim. Now, this hypanthium swells around the fertilised ovary of the flower and becomes an apple, a pear, a hawthorn, or indeed a rowanberry. This false fruit retains the calyx of the flower's five dead sepals, or a witch-defying supernatural pentagram, if you prefer. Anyway, these red berries are astringent and are best cooked and turned into jellies before we bipeds can enjoy them. And like many fruits, they must pass through the gut of an animal before the seeds will ever germinate. And in the Rowan's instance, this service is provided by a host of our winged friends. Waxwings, red starts, missile thrushes, and many more birds devour the berries. 
In fact, the scientific name for the tree, Alcaparia, comes from the words avis, meaning bird, and capere, meaning catching. Pharaohan berries were used as bait by fowlers to attract their avian prey. But they also used the berries for a slightly darker purpose. Now here comes the word of the day for you. The mucilaginous fruit, read sticky, could also be used by fowlers to make bird lime. A thick, sticky glue that keeps its mucilaginosity in both heat and freeze, bird lime could be coated by the fowlers upon a tree's branches where birds would land, remain stuck, and then be easily captured. There are many ways to make bird lime. Some make the use of holly bark or mistletoe, but one recipe uses the berries of the rowan. They are pounded out of recognition, boiled for hours, fermented for days, added to a few other ingredients, and then coated upon your favourite bird-snatching tree. Until recently, in Valencia, bird lime was used particularly to capture song thrushes, a local gastronomical delicacy. Anyway, the barbaric use of bird lime was only very recently, in March of 2021, ruled by the European Court of Justice to be illegal throughout the European Union. But since now that we've left the EU, no doubt some utter douche-face, read Conservative MP, is planning to push it back through the House of Lords and onto our trees again. And whilst we're on sticky destructive substances that deserve to be outlawed or left simply upon the pages of our history books, let's look at another Tory. During the Second World War, an anti-tank grenade known as the Sticky Bomb was created. It was a grenade that would stick to a tank's caterpillar tracks, explode and render the tank completely useless. A glass flask containing explosives was wrapped in what was essentially a woolly sock and then covered in glue and thrown at a poor, unsuspecting tank. Many glues were used, but the best of the purpose turned out to be the good old-fashioned, centuries-tried-and-tested bird lime. Upon watching a trial run of the sticky bomb in October of 1940, Churchill himself was so impressed that he immediately wrote the simple memo, Sticky bomb. Make one million. But unfortunately, despite this support from the very top of government, and even with the unsurpassable mucilaginous attributes of bird lime that could have contained rowan berries, the sticky bomb never quite stuck. Which led the illustrious war leader to bullishly double down in the manner he remains famous for today. General Ismay, I understand that the trials were not entirely successful and the bomb failed to stick on tanks which were covered in dust and mud. No doubt, some more sticky mixture can be devised, and Major Jeffries should persevere. Any chortling by officials who have been slothful in pushing this bomb over the fact that at present it has not succeeded will be viewed with great disfavour by me. Now, this week's Rowan may have let down Churchill and his war effort in this particular instance, but the same can most certainly not be said of next week's trees. In fact, without the explosive buckthorn and alder buckthorn, Modern warfare may have ended up looking very different indeed. But more on that in seven days' time. And on that literal bombshell, that is the Rowan, and with it the end of our native tree members of the Rosaceae. Thank you to Johannes Harko Johannesson for being my Thor earlier, both in the Old Norse and Modern English. And thank you again to Al Petri for his return to Trees of Crowd and for being my Winston Churchill for the day, albeit only in the one language. Shame on you, Al. B minus. Must try harder. And that's it. As always, come join other squirrels for Anatta on our Patreon or simply leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Do whatever you can. Thank you very much. But until next week, ta for now. Goodbye. A poo day, the secrets and stories beneath the 56 a 
Native trees of the British.